everyone. This is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m., and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm your host producer, Nina Serrano, with my Writer to Writer series. Today's guest is novelist Monique Trone, author of Bitter in the Mouth, which she'll be reading from today. Monique's novels have reached the favorites list of places like the New York Times, The Village Voice, Barnes and Nobles, and more. She's a multi-award winning writer and it's very exciting to have her with us here today to read from Bitter in the Mouth. Welcome Monique to Open Book. Thanks Nina. Thanks so much for having me on. You're going to be reading here in the Bay Area this Saturday, November 5th, and I wanted to invite people to come. It's going to be at 4 o'clock at the Writer's Studio at the California College of Arts on DeHaro Street in San Francisco. And will you be reading from the book there, too? Yes, I'll be reading from my second novel. And will the book be available there? Yes, I think, um, actually, East Wind Books will be there to sell. Wonderful. Yeah. So this is your second novel. When was this written? Uh, when was it written? Well, um, really over the course of the, um, since 2003, <laughs> from 2003 to around 2008. <laughs> so would you call this a coming of age novel? Um, certainly. Um, the, the novel is organized, uh, into two, um, two um, sections and the first section is certainly uh, a coming of age novel Uh, my main character is named Linda Hamrick and she is growing up in a very small town in the south called Boiling Springs, North Carolina which happens to also be the town that I grew up in Um, and Linda has a a neurological condition that causes her to taste words and so um, that first half of the book is really about Linda trying to understand her body. Well, could you read us a little of that, please? Sure. Um, um, I'll start at the beginning. How about that? There's a good <laughs> idea. Okay. I fell in love with my great uncle Harper because he taught me how to dance. He said that rhythm was allowing yourself to feel your blood coursing through you he told me to close my eyes and forget the rest of my body i did and we bopped our non-existent selves up and down and side to side he liked me because i was a quiet child he showed me photographs of himself as a boy he referred to himself in the third person This here is Harper Evan Birch, he would say. The boy in those photographs, he was also a quiet child. I could tell from the way that his arms were always flat by his side, never akimbo, or raised high to the North Carolina sky. We were both compact, always folding ourselves into smaller pieces. 
We both liked music because it was a river where we stripped down, jumped in, and flailed our arms around. It was 1975 then, and the water everywhere around us was glittery with disco lights. My great uncle Harper and I, though, danced Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Fats Domino. We twisted, mashed potatoed, and winked at each other whenever we opened our eyes. My great uncle Harper was my first love. I was seven years old. In his company, I laughed out loud. I'm not ashamed to admit that I have tried to find him in the male bodies that I lie next to, and that I see him now only when I turn off the lights. His bow tie undone, hanging around his shirt collar, modest isosceles triangles, concerning fashion at the time. His pants cuffed and creased. His graying hair cut the same as when he was a boy. A wedge of it hanging over one eye, the other one, a blue lake dappled by the sun. My great uncle Harper wasn't where I thought I would begin, but a family narrative should begin with love. Because he was my first love, I was spared the saddest experience in most people's lives. My first love and my first heartbreak were dealt by different. Pairs of hands. I was lucky. My memories of the two sensations, one of my heart filling and one of it emptying, were divided and lodged in separate bodies. I can still recall the feeling that came over me when my great uncle Harper first placed the record needle onto the spinning 45. It happened. Right away, I felt that everything deep within my body was rising to the surface, that my skin was growing thin, that I would come apart. If this sounds painful, it wasn't. It was what love did to my body, which was to transform it. I would come apart like a fireworks display, a burst of light that would grow larger and glow and make the person below me say, "Ah!" I remembered saying my great uncle's name aloud. This memory of my first love was then safe from all that was to come. I'll tell you. The easy things first. I'll use simple sentences, so factual and flat. These statements will land in between us, like playing cards on a table. My name is Linda Hamrick. I grew up in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. My parents were Thomas and Deanne. My best friend was named Kelly. I was my father's tomboy. I was my mother's. Patan twirler. I was my high school's valedictorian. I went far away for college and law school. I live now in New York City. I miss my great uncle Harper. But once these cards have been thrown down, there are bound to be distorting overlaps.
the head of the queen of spades on the body of the king of clubs, the joker's bowed legs beneath a field of hearts. I grew up in Thomas and Kelly. My parents were valedictorian and baton twirler. My best friend was named Harper. I was my father's New York City. I was my mother's college and law school. I was my high school's tomboy. I went far away for Thomas and Deanne. I live now in Boiling Springs. I miss Linda Hamrick. The only way to sort out the truth is to pick up the cards again, slowly examining each one. Thank you. You just heard the reading of Michelle Truong from her novel, Bitter in the Mouth, here on KPFA. You read so wonderfully. Oh, thank you, Nina. And I, I loved the book, but it provides such an enormous professional challenge for me because <laughs> the protocol for reviewers and interviews interviewers is not to give away the ending, not to ruin it for the reader. Mm. Yet so much of this marvelously constructed book is based on what you find at the end, because at the end you learn something that transforms everything that you had read before. You see it in a totally different way. Mm. It's a big intellectual uh, flip-flop that happens. <sighs> so I can't tell the reader about that and so it makes me not know how to proceed so maybe you could say something that would be helpful with this um okay well um may i begin by saying that um i i love the fact that that you ha have had this wonderful reaction to the ending and that it does um that it does provoke you to rethink everything that you've read because that is actually one of um, my goals was to encourage a rereading, you know, because um, uh, I think that books deserve more than one reading, <laughs> especially if, if they're well-crafted. But um, just to, you know, um, to give your listener um, an idea about Bitter in the Mouth, like I said, um, it's set in the small town where I, my family and I first lived in the United States. Um, and um, it was, um, this was back in 1975. And, um, you know, I sometimes think of coming to Boiling Springs from Vietnam as a kind of being reborn for me, you know, not in the religious sense, but in the sense that all of a sudden I was perceived to have a different body, you know. And so a lot of my time there, um, you know, was trying to understand how other people were were actually taking me in visually <laughs> you know so i i ha i had this huge disconnect between uh 
how I saw myself and how I understood my body versus how everyone else was uh, reacting to it. And just to be very clear, you know, this was the South small town, um, 75. It was essentially, you know, a, a town that was still a de facto, you know, segregated. And there were the black students and the white students at my elementary school. And they might have been the same class classes but they were not the same and here I come into this mix uh, and I am you know the only Asian child uh, in this little school and you know all of a sudden I've uh, am being told I have yellow skin <laughs> which I've never thought I had a color before and to imagine that is yellow was something that I, you know, I couldn't have imagined. I was told I had slants for eyes, and I looked in the mirror, and I still had the same pairs of eyes, you know. So I pulled a lot from my own sort of, my personal experience with trying to reconcile what I thought was just a body that was inexplicable to me. <laughs> Um, and I gave a lot of that to my character, Linda, who is going through um, something that is, you know, for her, it's it's her synesthesia, or um, which is, you know, this this term that refers to the mixing of the senses. And she has the form where she tastes words. But you know, I have to say that uh, as you as you alluded to, as the book progresses. Um, you find out that Linda has, you know, more than one, uh, level of, of difference, let's say, um, that sets her apart from her family and, uh, the people around her in this town. But, um, you know, the thing is, I, I feel, um, that this book really is about difference and also secrets because often when we are different in some way some of us can keep it a secret and some of us cannot for example if you're racially different certainly it's not a secret but if you have let's say how Linda introduces herself to us in the first part of the book as having a um, a neurological condition that allows her to to experience the the world in such a different way, in such a profoundly different way, and yet, in a sense, she can keep that a secret, right? And, you know, and I was certainly thinking about, you know, folks who, um, I mean, LGBT, you know, <laughs> children who, like, you know, know at a certain point, I'm a lesbian, I'm a, you know, I'm gay, but... At a certain point, we, you know, you learn to keep that quiet, right? Um, but so for me, difference and secrets, especially in childhood, often go hand in hand, right? And so Linda, as a character, keeps, uh, you know, more than one <laughs> secret to herself until I think she feels safe with the reader uh, and then she reveals them you know she reveals to them uh, these other sort of components to uh, that makes up who she is um, but it it takes actually halfway into that book you know before you uh, figure the 
that there's something else going on. Um, That's true. And, you know, it's very interesting that you say that uh, it takes her half the book to feel comfortable with the reader. It's because and you feel that as you're reading that you're really being spoken to. You really feel that and you feel these changes. You don't and because of these secrets, you don't always know what's going on. But uh you keep turning those pages to find out. It's very, very beautifully written. I wonder if you could read us from another section. Sure. Okay. And uh this section is is really about the two things that I really love to write about, uh, which is language and food. Okay. I had just learned the trick of stringing together words to produce the taste that I wanted. I was particularly fond of this thread. Walnut, elephant, candle, jogger. These words brought forth the following in this satisfying order. Ham steak, sugar cured and pan fried. Sweet potatoes, baked with lots of butter. Seven up, the more of the lime than the lemon, like when it's icy cold. Fresh strawberries, sweet and ripe. Growing up with Deanne for a mother, I could count on one hand the times that I have had a really good meal like that. Every once in a while, an ingredient would slip past Deanne's fingers, unspoiled. Fresh strawberries, for example. During the summers, my great-uncle Harper and I would go to the pick-your-own-farms in the nearby town of Kings Mountain, and the berries that we brought back were so red, perfect, and fragrant that even Deanne left them alone. That was perhaps my favorite memory of my mother, her walking out of the kitchen with a cut glass bowl full of strawberries. A bowl of Cool Whip would be waiting at the table for them as well. I never touch the stuff, not after Baby Harper called it edible shaving cream. I didn't understand until I had left Boiling Springs and specifically the sphere of influence of Deanne's kitchen, why so many of the incomings of my childhood were mildly unpleasant, bland, or unremarkable at best. The reason was disarmingly simple. The experiential flavors had to come first. Once the memories of them, of the canned, the frozen, the surprise, the ala king, had lodged themselves in my brain, then and only then, could these tastes attach themselves to the words in my vocabulary without cause or consideration for the meanings of the words. I, too, had to disregard the meanings of the words if I wanted to enjoy what the words could offer me. At first, the letting go of meaning was a difficult step for me to take. Like loosening my fingers from the side of a swimming pool for the very first time. The world suddenly became vast and fluid. 
anything could happen to me as I drifted toward the deep end of the pool. But without words resourceful and revealing, who would know of the dangers that I faced? I would be defenseless. I would drown. Maybe all children felt this way. We grab onto words because we thought that they could save us. Mama got us a pair of hands, a bosom to hide our faces in. Papa got us a lift skyward, a perch on a shoulder. Maybe our first words all had the same meaning. Save me. A plea that, if answered, reinforced our desire to acquire more, to amass a vocabulary that could be our arsenal against the unknown terrors of life. To let go of meaning was to allow for the possibility that words didn't hold within them this promise of salvation. Or because of my misuse of the words, I alone wouldn't be saved. Of course, I was afraid. The first time I did it, it was out of necessity. I was hungry, and the casserole du jour was chicken a la king, my least favorite in Deanne's rotation. As she scooped it onto our plates, she announced its name as if we had never seen this dish before. As usual, there were gray slices of canned mushrooms to which the thick, dun-colored sauce refused to adhere. A repulsion on a molecular level, perhaps. The sauce stuck to the egg noodles and the chicken pieces instead, lending its gluey, spongy texture to both the starch and the meat. I excused myself from the dinner table to go wash my hands, and then I, a skinny eleven-year-old, sat on the edge of the bathtub and blurted out, "Not again, pancake, no syrup." There it was. Sustenance, simple, without sauce. Each repetition of the word again was a revelation. The faster I said it, the more intense and mouth-filling the taste became. Each repetition was a restitution for past meals suffered. Each repetition was an inoculation for future meals to be endured. I wanted to see how many times I would have to say the word in order to approximate the feeling of being full. You've just heard Monique Truong, author of Bitter in the Mouth, reading from her book Bitter in the Mouth. And she's going to be doing another reading here in the Bay Area Saturday, November fifth, from four to six, at the California College of Arts on DeHaro Street in San Francisco in the Writer's Studio, and her book will be available at that time. That was a wonderful reading. Thank you so much, Monique. Thank you, Nina. It's really been great to have you. I guess、uh, you've been reading what's been going on here in Oakland.、Mm-hmm. We've been having some tumultuous and exciting、uh, 
promising and challenging times with the occupation and the general strike. And I wanted to uh, tell listeners where they might be able to see photographs of that, uh, photographs by Miles Boyson and Elisa Salasine. They're going to be shown at the warehouse today, Friday night, at 41626th Street in Oakland. That's 41626th Street. And after that, the display will be moved to Oscar Grant Plaza in the heart of occupied Oakland. Have you heard about Oscar Grant on your... No, I haven't. Okay, coming from New York, I can understand. He was a young man two years ago that was killed on New Year's Eve night at the BART station. He was shot in the back by the police while laying down on the ground handcuffed. Yes. And uh, so many people of color have received this kind of treatment from the police, and it was one of the build-ups to what's going on now. And so the place where the Occupy Oakland is taking place has been renamed Ah. Oscar Grant Jr. Plaza. Got it. Yeah. So that's where the uh, photography exhibit will move uh, to Occupy Oakland after it opens tonight at 416 26th Street. And who knows, your photo, you the listener, your photos might be in it. Also, I wanted to play as a uh, tribute to Occupy Oakland and the general strike a song called Oakland's Tight by Carne Cruda. Down on Potrero, San Pancho's a great city, cosmopolitan and gritty. But right across the bay, today is where I stay. Not Berkeley, not Fremont, Alameda or Piedmont. I got to tell you all about it, cause the views I like. What? Creation, but the place I understand is my home, Oakland. Every place I go, when the people want to know where I come from,
you just heard Carne Cruda's song, Oakland's Tight. And you can hear more of their songs and download them on roundworldrecords.com. And that's W-H-I-R-L-E-D, world, roundworldrecords.com. And earlier you heard Monique Truong reading from her book, Bitter in the Mouth. And you can catch her reading Saturday, November 5th from 4 to 6 at the California College of Arts on DeHarrow Street in San Francisco. I thank you all so much for listening. And I thank Erica Bridgman for engineering. And I wish you a very good weekend. <laughs>